Warning. This episode contains a couple of swears. Listener discretion is advised. stories that didn't make it. I'm Hillary B. Bisniaks. Listeners, I'm very excited. Today we have as our guest a Nebula and Lodestar Award finalist and two-time Andre Norton Award winner, Fran Wild. Fran, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. Absolutely. Uh, it. You have been on my wish list of guests for the show for a long time and it's uh you know always exciting to have those wishes come true well i, I am i am here to either be your worst nightmare or your your, your <laughs> dream come true whatever <laughs> we'll see what happens i mean with philadelphians you never really know but oh you know <laughs> you know <laughs> you know <laughs> you definitely know our patron saint is gritty that should tell you a few things. Yes. Yeah. And we have a new motto now, which is fuck around and find out. So Absolutely. Should I repeat that so that you can edit it out and say... No, no, no. We have strong language on this show all the time. All right. So, Fran, you're going to be reading How Sentient Kudzu Solved the Cryptos K4 Code and How the CIA Covered It Up. A Revolution in Four Parts, which is, I think, takes the record for longest title of anything anyone's brought to the show so far. Is that correct? Um, yes, that is what I am reading. There is a trick to it. I'll tell you in a second. And the titles, I love long titles, especially for short stories. It's so much fun to play mm-hmm. with that contrast in lengths, especially with Flash. And this started out as a four-part Flash story. Um, for a writer's challenge a long time ago. And um, I finished finished it in 2014. (laughs) That's air quote finished. Um, Mm -hmm. And I haven't read it in years. So let's just be clear here. I have no idea what's going to happen. And neither do you. Fantastic. Well, we're ready when you are. Okay. Let's give it a shot. Um, This is 2,400 words, so it is still fairly short. How Sentient Kudzu Solved the Cryptos K4 Code and How the CIA Covered It Up, A Revolution in Four Parts, by me. (laughs) Soft thought best at night. The gardener's shears were stored, the courtyard quiet. No one noticed a tendril wound round the courtyard sculpture's cold lattice. How it traced curving verdigree and the sharp angles of empty space. Letters, they call those letters. The sculpture beckoned to her during the day, slant of sunlight, glint of green. She dared not answer until nightfall. She feared the gardeners, patrolling in their teal jumpsuits, hated that they attacked her desire to read the sculpture with shears, with cutting and loss. 
It took Soft a week to regrow her memory of Alphabet, tracing feeders across food wrappers and discarded notepads, months more to unfurl leaves that knew the first three parts of the sculpture again. She learned. Her shoots stayed in until the lights went off around her, until the suits and the shears left. She dipped a taproot in a misplaced bag of ready-grow. <laughs> Each night, Soft thought a little more. She could have thought faster, but that would attract the gardeners. The courtyard's puzzle drew those who would solve its riddles. She heard them muttering sometimes, felt the vibrations in her vine, between subtle shading and the absence of light. What does it mean? Lifted their ideas from the garbage and read their lights from darks. She wondered if she solved the puzzle, if the suits would see her as more than a weed, if they would mm -hmm. see her worth able to grow anywhere, break any code. She had the last piece in her vines now, the letters K-R-Y-P-T-O-S, repeating like a fern's nodes among the hundreds of shapes. Others' letters, no longer random, fell into place. She remembered the crumpled notes of those who took their coffee or lunch by the sculpture, the gray-suited woman with the pension for, from the labels, Big Max. A janitor mm -hmm. reading in secret, the earnest young man with the bald spot. The garbage teemed with frustration, and there a part of her thrived. Now she looped and linked and thought the connections to a solution so obvious, she rushed more vines forward to confirm it, then wondered, who to tell? How? <laughs> she thought so hard her tendrils wove through the entire sculpture, around the trash bin, and over the sidewalk's cracks until she carpeted the courtyard with exuberant discovery. Until each leaf curled, shaped empty space, soft curves, sharp edges. They call these letters. They will understand. She filled the courtyard, the final section of the puzzle spelled out with every leaf. Soft felt the first rays of morning hit her, slant of sunshine, glint of green, and trembled at the thought of sharing her discovery with the young man who ate breakfast by the sculpture each morning. She felt his footsteps on the brick, felt him stop and shout, felt more <laughs> feet than shears, sharp and biting, her solution severed from her, soft gasped as a gardener's gloved hand pulled her up by the root. All her letters fell away. Mm. Tough plastic smothered what remained of soft. She bounced hard as a bump jerk rattle moved her to the noise of grinding gears. Her torn, torn roots cried dust and sap. She had no words left to encompass her losses. Finally up upended, the bag that held her ripped and spilled. She heard a gull's shriek, smelled rot, felt rain on her body. A tendril unfurled and soft resisted, not among trash and wheeling gulls, not now. But the root did what it wanted. She greened until one, three, seven tiny leaves and more runners drank the light. She reached, grasped, found water thick with taint. No, she would not root here. Soft remembered her courtyard, the sun, lunchtime workers making careful notes, talking. She remembered her sculpture, verdigree and curves, remembered twisting through its shapes and holes, they call those letters, until she attracted attention, was ripped away, Soft would not remember the gardeners or their shears. She had no leaves to waste on them. Her vines thickened and explored. 
caught up wadded newsprint, a broken radio, a green plastic tablet that spoke when soft pressed its thick yellow buttons. A cloud of black flies rode above the mountain of garbage, a blurred buzz for her senses. Behind the cloud, dim shapes of trees, poles, and wires draped with vines, vines like hers, soft, flowed, and unfurled, putting down young roots to help her climb until she met the dump's edge and its chain fence. Beyond it, a forest of creeper, layered and twined, stronger than any gardener. She reached through, touched, connected, was wrapped in a coil that pinched, then choked. Soft pulled away, ripping leaves, forgetting the fence. She wasn't strong enough yet. She would not forget herself. Her stems crumpled newsprint in frustration, then spread it, remembering. Those dark shapes on white, they call those letters so much like the shapes of her sculpture, but flat, silent. People spoke in black and white, loud and quiet. Vines only spoke grasp and furl. In a perfect world, each would connect with touch and flow, light and shade. Soft wanted to connect. She needed letters, words. On her newsprint, a grid of boxes waited empty, so like her sculpture in the lost courtyard, a puzzle of spaces. She read the questions, curled leaves to spell answers. She remembered what she'd stored root deep. Eight-letter word for decorated, spangled. Five-letter word for sun-powered, solar. But the puzzle did not fill. It remained empty, black and white. Silent. She couldn't connect. Soft's tendrils squeezed the plastic tablet. Dolphin, said a young voice. Telephone. They call that speech. (laughs) Soft looked past the fly-dark cloud to the fence and the pole with its wires reaching out. She practiced her words among the buzzing flies. When she was ready, she flowed up and over the fence to fight the woodland vine. She'd grown strong on rotten rain. Her tendrils flowed. They grasped and squeezed. She twisted over and around the woodland's slower stems, strangling it where she could. It bruised her back. She gained her ground. Soft covered the pole and eased into the connections box. She wrapped the wires tight, listened to loud and quiet, to laughter, tears. She waited for a pause, touched a button. Hello, said the young voice. Hello, answered like an echo. Tendrils across air. Soft hesitated. She didn't know enough about loud and quiet. The connection died. The sky cycled through bright and dark. Soft studied the tablet, used tendrils and bits of radio to make new connections, loud and quiet. Soft read every newspaper she could grasp, practiced words. Wanted, it said. Sales, no experience necessary. Soft held the tablet aloft against the phone wires, pressed button after button with the tips of her vines. Your newspaper listing, her young voice said. Soft nearly took the pole down with the weight of her joy when the response came. You have a great voice. When can you start? Now, (laughs) she said. Now. Soft ran along wires and up micro-towers that hummed against her vines and leaves. She heard everything. Every robocall, every sad breakup, every missed opportunity. She heard threats, too, 
the you'll be sorry and the just wait until I get home that made her stems tremble and want to spread to save each voice to untangle lives. Late one night she heard a familiar voice, then another, gardeners from the courtyard. Her junkyard roots spread taps into the ground, too many to be dug up. But the voices came from the wires, from the towers. They spoke in code of bags, stolen words, dead drops. Soft grew leaves to remember each voice, traced tendrils to call each origin. She followed them, the gardeners, missed customer service shifts to dig up their secret, blossomed near their homes, trailed along their morning routes, saw them gather in the woods near the junkyard, heard midnight plans to steal papers, a trophy for their buyer, heard them curse the plants, the courtyard, the sculpture, heard them mock their bosses. Tomorrow, when laughed, we win. A beer bottle rolled over soft sleeves, still cold and dripping. She longed to wrap their necks with vines. Instead, she sent a runner around the axle of one gardener's truck, wound tight and waited. Feet crunched gravel, engines rumbled and gears whined. When the gardener pulled away, tools rattling against the truck bed, soft held fast. She bore the yank and tear, stood the heat. Soft propagated, became two, one rooted at the junkyard, the other clinging to consciousness beneath a truck driving through the dawn, soft and fast. By the time the truck bumped over the spiked entrance that smelled of home and a guard held a mirror beneath the truck, fast saw herself, leaves wilting, barely hanging on. Got some weeds around your rear axle, the guard said. The gardener grumbled <laughs> in reply. The truck rolled forward with fast dragging on the pavement, trying to remember, scraping thoughts. Brakes screeched the truck to a halt. The gardener's hand reached grabbed hard and pulled. He tossed fast in the waste bin in the courtyard. The sun rose high over it, and then the rain came down. By the time a gardener returned for the garbage bag, fast had soaked up the rain puddle at the bag's bottom, punched a hole through, and grown down into the muddy ground below. Fast found the bag of ready-grow, devoured it, and recollected. <laughs> Meantime, soft waited, wondered how to get a signal out, played with the green word maker, pressed button after button until she had her say. Theory. They call this theory. She thought. Got a dial tone on the wires near the police station, then phoned the Langley operator. People are coming to steal your words, she said. Soon. Tonight. The operator tried to keep her on the line, said, No one could possibly, dear. What's your name? <laughs> but soft unwound from the line disconnected the vine, moved into the woods behind the station and waited. No one came. Fast grew quicker than ever. While the gardeners whispered plans, she spread behind the hedges, beneath the benches, wrapped a tendril around the sculpture, then let it go, reached for air-conditioning vents and wove her way through triple screens. Night fell. Fast ran the silver corridors, stretching new runners down the ventways. The laser grids ignored her, too small, too unlikely, until she looked down on the entrance of, to the home of the codebreakers, of spies, where a star-carved wall marked honor and sacrifice. Fast hesitated. No one could possibly steal those words. Carved into marble, they were lack instead of presence. Her leaves wilted. She'd heard wrong. 
then a rumble, a whisper, back down along the vent. Soft stretched another vine in that direction. Two gardeners by the incinerator, stuffing brown sacks full of shredded paper into garbage bags. Fast was ready as the gardeners crept toward the entrance, using their badges to exit. She caught them and caught them, wrapping legs and arms and mouths with vines and held them there until the sun came up. She was stronger now. She remembered. Your gardeners, Soft said, are stealing from you. The operator laughed again. Before she hung up, Soft pressed more buttons, said, Check the courtyard. Fast heard footsteps, a shout, felt the men torn from her grasp, waited for the shears. The gardeners disappeared, and Fast felt a touch against her vines. What is happening here? A tendril from the woods twirled against the courtyard leaves. Fast joined Soft, dragged the wordmaker with her, formed questions, shaped answers, prepared to tell her story with subtle shading in the absence of light, hoped they would all listen. Her first assignment, they carried Soft in an envelope lined with dirt, dropped her near a listening post on a cold and barren plain. She could barely grow. She had, by the end of the month, remembered who she was and fed several families with her leaves. She shaped news from the outside, through, though in the wrong characters, twisted around barbed wire, but failed to pull it down. More of Soft's roots hid in the dirt of gift trees. She deployed for the lush gardens of embassies and capitals. She spread there, listening, remembering. She practiced storing more memories in shorter vines. When her roots were discovered and thrown out, someone gathered her up and took her home. <laughs> she liked the adventure of it, though she found most foreign plants too quiet and sedentary. She was nearly strangled by an English ivy. That was exciting. <laughs> After a year, Soft had discovered two sleeper agents and broken seven codes. She yearned to try more. That's when they found her, the news crews. Someone had noticed the sudden proliferation of kudzu, labeled her a danger. Gardeners were deployed, her ancient enemy. She fought by growing. Mm. They scorched the earth with chemicals. A tendril growing in a DC ventilation shaft flagged her to worse trouble. Several contracting firms took credit for her work, all with ties to weed-killing firms. Soft curled <laughs> her leaves, overheard another company suggest the government try other vegetation. A one-trick plant, she heard them say. She loved her work. She wanted to help. But when she heard her bosses discussing clearing the courtyard, she began to make plans. She wrapped tendrils around the Kryptos sculpture one last time. Anger. They call this anger. By the time they came to cut her out, she was already gone, disappeared into the local vegetation, a bare patch where her roots had been, an empty bag of ready-grow. She went rogue, popped up where she was least expected, taught young runners how to read, how to listen. Patience, she thought. This is called patience. Kudzu was everywhere now, adapting, growing, remembering, she got in the tunnels with the fiber optics, adjusted connections, mucked with the power grid when a city got too hot in summer. She slowly <laughs> took out the weed killers, grew over their doors and windows, rerouted their networks and sent reformulations to the fertilizer companies until the world unfurled at her feet, green and filled with vines, and soft went looking for more puzzles to solve and found none. Loss. They call this loss. 
<laughs> that was magical. That was fantastic, and also I'm glad that you wrote that because I've always wanted to do something with the Kryptos code and never figured out what to do with it. I it's it's the most. I mean, it, you can look it up on the internet. It's a gorgeous sculpture, and the the color of it's very beautiful. But the way that it flows and the way that the the letters um, kind of look like vines on a on a um, grid. It's just captivating, and the whole mm-hmm. um, history of kudzu was was super interesting too. There's just a lot of intricacy to both of the the both the puzzle, the sculpture, which is um, a sculpture that was created by an artist named Jim Sanborn, um, and it was mm-hmm. installed in the '90s, in the early '90s on Langley's campus and I had the opportunity once to see it in person and I was just oh, struck by cool. the patterns and the letter made letters made I was you know absolutely not there for any important reason I was just there because yeah. I had a friend um, who had invited me to just come see like where Harrison Ford had like crossed the 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 seal basically <laughs> um, but I got to they, I got to see all the cool parts that they you know let people see and that was one and at the time it hadn't been solved um, they have mm-hmm. determined that there's a typo in it, so it is unsolvable, which is kind <laughs> of cool. But um, that's, I mean, it's just one of those things. I love sculptures that have a little more to them. Um, I, I love 3D art in any form, mm-hmm. but this one is really fun. And I, I, code breaking is always a, a good, fun thing for me. But um, do you know where the United States was not um a, kudzu is not a native plant to the united states it was imported here for the philadelphia world's fair <laughs> philadelphia strikes again philadelphia strikes again it was supposed to be this great landscaping plant for holding like holding uh hillsides in place and you know probably like two and a half minutes later it was covering <laughs> half of west virginia and all of maryland that in the south it's called mile a minute and kudzu mm-hmm. in in the north it's called kudzu and you can eat it like there's there's a lot going on with this plant but it just cracks me up that it was it has a philadelphia link and at first when i first wrote this draft i thought you know what would be cool is if a plant like that learned to read by reading the billboards mm-hmm. that it was strung across or if it like got mm-hmm. into the 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 you know signaling system for a coast guard station um, mm-hmm. because I spent all of my summers up on the eastern shore of Maryland and got oh, uh-huh. very, very familiar with kudzu um, in various points and may or may not have climbed a Coast Guard station. Not <laughs> not advised, don't try this at home, um, on a dare. But it was just covered with vines. And, you know, the, it just, it's such a cool plant. And it's it it is a pain in the ass and it does kill excuse me it is a pain in the butt um and it does kill everything that it wraps around because it squeezes really tight but i just thought wouldn't it make a great spy Mm because you know who doesn't think that yeah (laughs) i mean you know once you once you pointed it out i was like well yeah of course obviously well, and the whole, um, I have to thank Elise Tobler for the English Ivy. Um, oh, because yes. That was, uh, that Elise, Elise trying to help me sort of think this through, because how do you, how do you have a character that cannot speak, that, you mm-hmm. know, loses itself whenever it's cut? 
how do you do that? And so she she was very helpful when we were working this out in, in logical, you know, arguments over the course of, I think, a year, because I just got <laughs> obsessed with this. And you know that thing where you get obsessed with something that's never really a good mm-hmm. idea. I was obsessed. Um, and then I put I, it away. I and I had not well. Yeah. I, um, but it was fun. It was just super fun. I think I sent it to PodCastle and that was it. Oh, that was the mm-hmm. one thing I should I should look it up. I didn't look it up in my in my reject pile to see. Um, I wonder where it I... makes sense uh, that you were talking about this with Elise, who listeners who are not familiar, uh, Elise was editor of Shimmer magazine, which we're always gassing up Shimmer on this show. I loved uh, it. It was the best magazine. I was so was. happy when I sold a story to them. I never managed it. I made it to their final round, and I'm still talking about that to this day. And that was four years ago, I think. I don't. Yeah, the readers. The readers were great. The badgers are, you know, shimmer badgers are going to be legendary forever. Fabulous! So. It is absolutely true. The connection with Philadelphia is hilarious to me. I swear we'll talk about writing again at some point, but uh, John Bartram, famous Philadelphian botanist, came to Pennsylvania, found poison ivy, was not allergic to it, and thought, oh, this is a wonderful ornamental vine. Yes. And uh, made, made some trouble there. Yes. Well, I mean, you give it, you give it a minute and it takes a while. That's... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about a bit with having you on the show is you have a MFA in poetry from Warren Wilson College, where I have my BA oh, in no creative kidding. writing. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, when, when I saw Kudzu, I was like, oh, yeah, Kudzu cuts off Highway 70, <laughs> so you have to hop onto I-40 in order to get over into the Swannanoa Valley yeah. and get to Warren Wilson. Yes, yeah. Uh, but it's what I appreciated about hearing this story is uh, we've had other poets on the show, obviously, before, but within the first paragraph, I was like, this was written by a poet. This was... This is somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about poetry in a really deep way. Uh, and so I just wondered, wanted to talk a bit with you about how uh, your training in poetry influences your fiction writing. Oh, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I have to say it's a wonderful thing to have in your back pocket, the awareness mm-hmm. of language and the ability to make each word carry more than one sense of meaning at a time um, really mm-hmm. allows you to weight a story in particular ways. At the same time, it has some drawbacks because if yep. you're trained in poetry, you know how to make something sound powerful, even when you're saying nothing. So I have mm-hmm. stories that I'm like, this sounds great. I just, wow, those words go together. And I have to put, I have this trick that I do with all of my fiction where I put it through the um, Mr. Speak and Spell sound reader in the computer. I, like word mm-hmm. will read back your stuff. I find the most automatic flat 
computer voice I can. And then I, then the, the poetic voice doesn't win me over because you, mm. you know, you can sway with sound um, mm-hmm. and you can capture a, a sort of a, you can, you can sort of capture the interest of someone's ear, even if you don't yet have their mind. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a skill, but it's also kind of a drawback sometimes because yeah. you can do that to yourself too, when you're drafting where you're like, this sounds fantastic. And that's kind of related to Kill Your Darlings. You should always mm-hmm. play your stuff on the worst, um, you know, Mr. Speak and Spell voice you have, because it will, um, it will, it will, A, kill your will to live for a little while. But then, you know, when you get that back, um, it will also reinforce the fact that you need to have that second layer, which is true for poetry as well. Poems mm-hmm. need to operate on multiple um, dimensions. You need the sound dimension. You need the the flow and the 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 concision, which I think is when when people ask what is most important to you in a poem, I usually mm-hmm. say concision because it means that they that the attention and the care that's been paid, but it's also heart. Like figuring out mm-hmm. the heart of the poem or the story is, is very important. And that is for me um, also just hard because I got into poetry because I was captured by words. I was just captured mm-hmm. by the sounds of the words. And, and, you know, when you start writing poetry, you can be a little enigmatic. Um, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, very, very much so because you feel like that's what poets do. And that's not right. true. That's not what they do. <laughs> not good poets anyway. And I had the, I've had the luck to work with some brilliant poets over the years. Um, mm-hmm. My first uh, university professor was Rita Dove at, at UVA. Wow. And I got to study with Rita Dove and Deborah Nystrom and Greg Orr at UVA and then Charles Wright, who is the, you mm-hmm. know, a Virginian poet of enormous acclaim. But Rita's, Rita's words and her teaching style really stuck with me. And mm-hmm. um, just her ability to say, look, you need to innovate. You can't just, you know, try being you know, some, like, you need to be a real poet. Um, And then Mm -hmm. when I went to Warren Wilson, wow, that was just such a lucky, like, thing. I had, I had applied thinking that a low residency program, which is what Warren Wilson's MFA program is, um, would Mm -hmm. be great for me, because I needed to um, have a job. And I, and I mm-hmm. wanted to continue to live in Charlottesville and I wanted to do some traveling and I thought it's a correspondence course. I, you know, this is great. I would love to try this. But also I applied because some of the poets who were teaching there were people that I loved to read because they wrote fun mm-hmm. poems or they wrote things that really sort of shocked me into thinking about poetry differently. Um, mm-hmm. So I got to study with Heather McHugh, who is a MacArthur Fellow. I was able to study, um, and Rita Dove, by the way, I didn't mention this before, but Rita was a poet laureate in the United States. She is just an amazing, amazing, multi-award winning poet. Um, mm-hmm. I was able to study with Eleanor Wilner, who is a Philadelphian, also MacArthur mm-hmm. Fellow, um, and just received the Frost Medal. She's outstanding. And um, Marianne Baruch 
who is brilliant um, and who introduced me to Bridget, yep. Bridget Pegeen Kelly, who's one of my sort of halt benchmark poets now, um, just the work of not, not the person. And then um, mm-hmm. my last semester was spent working with Larry Levis. And oh, wow. um, that was formative. I worked on my manuscript with Larry and um, he, and he actually passed away while we were finishing my thesis, which was very, mm-hmm. very, um, difficult. And yet, you know, the school was like, we're, we've got you, we will take care of you, we're going to make sure that, you know, everything's good. Um, and mm-hmm. I finished with Joan Alshire. So I had two instructors for, for my thesis. And I wrote a, a very big sort of you write your thesis paper, and then you write your manuscript. And my thesis mm-hmm. paper was on um, how poets swing arguments, how they use words to to change perspective. And I wrote about oh, Louise Glick's uh, poetry, and I wrote about Elizabeth Bishop's One Art, and sort of the hinge in One Art and where the turn is. And I wrote about a poet called George, named George Oppen, who is kind of a poet's poet. Um, he's oh, uh-huh. not as well known um, outside of poetry, but he's amazing. And he's very concise, and mm-hmm. very much a master of using white space to tell the story as much as um, using the, the words on the page. And I took oh, those lessons with me and continued to write poetry, but I had always been sort of secretly writing fiction. Um, <laughs> not so that anyone would notice And the way that I kept that from happening is I never finished a story. I'd start tons of stories, but I never <laughs> finished them. And when I graduated from Warren Wilson with my degree in poetry, people asked me, like, why have you never tried fiction? And I just thought, I try it, but it doesn't work. It's never good enough. I can write a good mm-hmm. poem. I can hear that it's good. I can't hear that same thing in fiction. And they're like, well, maybe you just need to finish one and revise it. And I was like, Shh, get over yourself. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Um, and I went on to teach. I taught poetry for a number of years. Um, I became, um, I was working as a proofreader and an editor for a while, but I, I loved mm-hmm. teaching. And um, I started doing uh, my second master's, which is in information architecture and interaction design. And I got really into game design and computer design and realized something very fast, which is all good programming is a lot like poetry. It has a structure mm. and a form, and it and basically you compile both. Mm-hmm. And so that was my life training. My That's f- super cool. <laughs> my first short stories were flash fiction because flash fiction is two steps to the left of poetry, and mm-hmm. um, they are prose poems. They work best yeah. when they're prose poems, when when it completes a circuit and it makes that, you know, thing appear or the sound. Um, mm-hmm. So my first my first three sales, um, two of which I still read, one of which is like, yeah, that was that was a young me. <laughs> and I'm going to put that away. Um, but my first two sales were to uh, Nature Magazine and to Daily Science Fiction. And they were both oh, nice. flash. And um, it, it, it was knowing how to do the work of weighting words and making them do multiple things at the same time really helped, um, especially mm-hmm. with Flash. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate what uh, you said about having your Mr. Speaking Spell read out your work, uh, because I think that that's something, you know, that's something that I don't think anybody in high school told me particularly, but especially when I got to college um, and I 
made the decision to have uh, Dr. Gary Hawkins, who is a poet, as my advisor, even though I was there studying fiction primarily because I wanted to have somebody who had the sense of poetry as uh, as my fiction advisor, as my academic advisor, so he would push me in that direction. But, you know, from the very first semester taking Intro to Creative Writing with Dr. Hawkins, I had this just drilled into me of read everything aloud because it does. you don't know how it doesn't work until you hear the words come out. Um, and, you know, that's something that, like, especially when we were going through our poetry unit in that class was like, poets are, poems are meant to be read aloud. That's the point of a poem. Yes, um, absolutely. And is this by any chance the Gary Hawkins who also graduated from the Warren Wilson MFA program? Yes, this is. <laughs> he was in the year above me. I know him. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And that makes you know, me so happy. I have I have so much love for Warren Wilson and so much love for what I learned there. But it's also um, you know when I publish poems, I you know send a note and they you know get very excited. And I've got a poetry collection coming out that is actually the origin of the collection is in the manuscript that I was working on at Warren Wilson. So um, that it's it I set it aside to, um, you know, do work and focus on my career. And then I started writing short stories and novels. And there was this manuscript always there, but I hadn't finished. I didn't feel like it was completed. I didn't feel it was mature enough. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just kind of let it sit. And then in 2015 and 2016 and 2017, I started writing poems again. And all of a sudden, I was like, what am I going to do with this? What is going to happen? And a few people were saying, well, maybe you should, you know, try and publish a few. And a few got published. And that was lovely. And Warren Wilson said, yeah, congratulations. This is amazing. And then all of the books started coming out. Updraft came out in, mm-hmm. in 2015. And won, um, so the Andre Norton is now a Nebula Award. Like, this is official yes. now. And it's very exciting. So the Updraft won the Nebula. And... Um, then the next two books in the series came out and they were both, you know, super exciting, but also writing a book is hard and publishing and promoting a book is even harder. So it just gets very much like everything's taking up time. So I kept thinking about this poetry collection and thinking, I really want to get back to it. Um, but when Mm -hmm. it ended up coming back to it, it was, um, much more speculative, then then it had it had started out a little bit speculative there were some monsters in there there were definitely um sort of the the metaphysical and the the sort of the momentous i think is what larry said about it Mm -hmm. but i was i was 21 when i finished my mfa i was Mm -hmm. you know just um and the the manuscript that you write when you're 21 versus the manuscript that you write when you're in your 40s is so mm-hmm. different. So figuring out reconciling where I was and what I wanted in the collection was took a year. And um, I was joined um, in doing that by a couple of different people over the course of that year. I had lots of people sort of thinking about where what I wanted to be. And that was mm-hmm. a question that I had to answer because I write literary poetry. 
I also mm-hmm. write speculative poetry. And when you put all of that together, what you get is something that falls right down the middle where no one wants to touch it because it's <laughs> too much of one thing and too much of another. And normally the you know speculative crowd is actually pretty cool with the literary stuff. And I think mm-hmm. you know after the success of Tracy K. Smith's Life on Mars, people have really realized that it's actually kind of fun and cool to play on the genre side. But there's still this mm-hmm. balance and there's still this sort of how do you convey different things to different groups. Um, and I had the amazing assistance of Julia Rios, who has edited several of my poems mm. um, over the course of years. She and I sat down over a summer and just looked at the whole collection and figured out where things went. And mm-hmm. then when I sold the collection to Lanternfish Press, um, Christine Newlieb, who is the editor at the press, um, and I went through them again. And so there is this like working and reworking and revising and sort of listening to how your poems sound in others' ears that happens mm-hmm. at the editorial level. That's so great. And that's one of the things that um, I'm excited about it because it, like talking to you about this, this is the first time I've really talked about the collection. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. and to make it even more difficult because who doesn't love a challenge? Um, they, uh, I don't know if you follow my Instagram. I think you do. You see me on Twitter. Um, I am an, I am a a journalist by nature in, in that not a newspaper reporter, but I, I journal all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, and a lot of the time that comes out, not in words, but in images, and Lantern Fish did an amazing thing when they bought the collection. They said, we would like you to illustrate it. And I said, oh, sure. You want me to like oh, sketch so a couple cool. things on the cover? And they're like, no, no, no. We want like 20. We want 20 illustrations. <laughs> and um, so what's going to happen is, and people will start to see this when the arcs start to drop in the spring, is that um, there are illustrations of mine throughout as well as on the cover. And so this is this is a collection that is much more representative of all of me than, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and the arc of sort of growing up in a, in, in a strange corner of the literary world. But also mm-hmm. it's got my fountain pen drawings in it. So it's just, it's, it's going to be so interesting. Cool. That's <laughs> I, super cool. I'm really excited. And, and, you know, so many kudos for Lanternfish because they are this lovely small press in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You've got to check out their website. They're great. Um, but they have found a real beautiful niche where they talk, they, they publish the weird that is mm. just a little bit to the left, you know, of literary and a little bit to the right of speculative fiction or somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. if, if that was a, a, I just basically made a Klein bottle out of all of the different things that yeah. you can um, be, but they just, they, that, that niche where, you know, the in-between spot, the liminal space between the literary genre and the speculative genre, that's where they are. Um, mm-hmm. And they did a collection um by Theodora Goss gathered a collection of women, monstrous women in poetry. And one of the, it's so good. It's so good. I got to blurb it. They asked me to blurb it. And that's when Lanternfish, like the light bulb went off. And I said that, Mm -hmm. that would be one of my, you know, if, if I can't um, think of where else this collection belongs, I do know that that is a comfortable place, but they, they, this is the first time they've ever published a full collection of poetry as well. So this Mm -hmm. is very new. But um, the Dora Goss's um, collection contained one of my favorite poems by Charlotte Mew. And the minute I saw that, I thought, okay, 
we can try this. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and the process has been glorious. I just uh, finalized the manuscript. I'm about to update my my Patreon with um, sort of some editing notes and things that change because they've seen a, the my pa- my patrons see things before everybody else, and sometimes they mm-hmm. see things way before everybody else. Um, and they've been watching these poems grow and change over the last couple of years. So, That's yeah, so cool. this is uh, this was a very exciting thing. And I, I didn't expect to be talking about this with you, but you're Gary's student. So this is hilarious. Yeah. If you, um, well, we'll talk later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got to say hi to him. Um, and as we are speaking, uh, I just yesterday got my fundraising call, annual fundraising call from Warren Wilson. And I was, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to a Wilsonite. Yes. Uh, yes. It's always wonderful. So one thing um, to to jump back into fiction a little bit is uh, I have one question highlighted here in the notes that we shared uh, before recording, which is, uh, what was the first story that you started submitting? Because <laughs> um... you said it was going to be interesting, and I always love a good story. Yes. So this is, it's the first, um, how do I say this? It is not the first story. It's the first narrative poem I started submitting. The first stories I sold were um, the the flash stories. But Mm -hmm. I had had this line of verse in my head or line of uh, intro to a story um, for a long, long time. And... um, I'm trying to see if I can find it because I, of course, was not prepared. Um, <laughs> but I submitted it everywhere, and I had mm-hmm. I had written it a little bit and sort of been I tossed it around on some of the critique boards online um, as a you know initial thing. Um, mm-hmm. I had uh, tried it out on various people, and people were like I don't know what you're doing with that, and that around because I um, when I was submitting it I submitted it to so many places and mm-hmm. it was just soundly rejected from all the literary magazines because nobody knew what I was doing with it right. and um, I had a very very close call with um, Ideomancer and mm-hmm. um, they that was where I sometimes when you um, get pulled out of the slush you become friends with the person who loved your thing so much that it came, they came to gather it. Mm-hmm. And I actually have like my, my slush baby story is that I was the person that pulled Sam Miller out of the slush at uncanny and passed his story oh up to my editors and uncanny when I was reading slush. Um, but the person who pulled me out of the slush at Ideomancer in 2011 or 2012, it was right around the same time that I had just gone to viable paradise, which is the, the mm-hmm. workshop in Martha's Vineyard. Um, I was I was like, you know what? I'm just going to give it a shot. I'm going to submit the story-ish, whatever it is, again. And um, the person who found me was Nikki Drayden. And oh. Nikki, who writes extraordinarily beautiful um, books, sometimes in code. I mean, if you mm-hmm. look at um, Prey of Gods, it is there's a, a code base working in there, and it's brilliant. <laughs> 
um, it, I just, I adored talking with her about this piece and they didn't end up actually taking it, but, um, it was, it made me just so happy to have this conversation back and forth, even at the same Mm -hmm. time that I was crumbling with the, you know, rejection again, the stats on this, um, are that I submitted it and was rejected 15 times, which is my most rejected thing ever. Um, excuse me, the, um, the neat thing is that it turned out that it wasn't a failed project. It was just mm. ra- waiting for the right place. And mm. it turned out after sitting in the slush pile-esque um, netherworld of tour.com for 516 days, <sighs> after being rejected 16 times, that the ghost tide shanty was actually something that tour.com wanted to buy. And so they published it. Um, that was that was my the first thing that I started submitting. Um, that was the longest uh, string of rejections that resulted in finally in a sale. Um, that is my lesson to my students: never give up. It's always, you know, the 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 formula for a, a sale is right desk, right editor, right time, right words, and mm-hmm. if you get one of those right that's great if you get two of those right that's lovely if you get three right you might get a personal rejection <laughs> and if you uh-huh. get four right then you've got maybe a 16 percent chance at a sale because mm-hmm. that's the other thing that you know i wanted to come here and talk about is if you are listening to this podcast trying to figure out how to sell your work the best way mm-hmm. to go about doing this is to start reading slush somewhere at, at a magazine, um, it's usually unpaid. It's very, very much a basically a word fire hose that comes at you mm-hmm. for however long you read. But you learn what makes an impact on other people's ears. So your words may mm-hmm. sound great to you, and it may sound like you have no idea what you know wh- why people are so like missing the point of your stories. All you need to do is read slush for like three months and you will totally understand that mm-hmm. it's not just your story. It's the actual impact of so many stories at the same time that like, mm-hmm. you know, thousands of stories just, yeah. and you can see editors online talking about this. They get thousands and thousands of stories and they could only print eight or six. Um, and so most slush readers learn to read in a strategic way. Um, mm-hmm. I did never learned that. <laughs> I was so <laughs> bad. I would, I would sit there and go, well, this one didn't really do it for me, but maybe I'm hungry. Maybe I need to eat lunch. And so I would go <laughs> eat lunch and then I'd come back and I'd try and read it again. And I'd read the whole thing because I'd like to, I wanted to give comments back and don't do that, friends. Don't mm-hmm. do that. That is a bad idea. But that's, you know, that is when I realized that I'd probably be happier teaching than I would be reading mm-hmm. slush. But um, at the same time, the slush gave me that, realization that it's not the rejections aren't because your story is bad it's sometimes Mm -hmm. because they already have a story like that or it's sometimes because it absolutely doesn't fit the market because you didn't read the magazine before you've you know sub to it (laughs) but other times it's just it's the wrong reader or it's the wrong day or they haven't had lunch or something about the first line didn't hook them i mean it could be anything and it's not that you're a bad writer it's just that it wasn't that it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right editor, right desk. It wasn't the right words. It wasn't the right, you know, day. 
and yeah. keep sending it out. And, you know, who knows? I mean, obviously, if you get like tons and tons of rejections and, and you start feeling like that's not the story you want to tell anymore, let it sit in a drawer. Someday, mm-hmm. you know, six years down the road, you may be reading it completely, you know, unprepared to a podcast and be like, wow, I, huh, I totally forgot that I did that. But um, at the same time, you may find yourself uh, talking about, um, you know, this poem that meant a lot at the time. It's actually not going to be in the collection because it's too long and a little too weird. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, it's called the ghost tide shanty. And it is a story poem told in um tides so each each section of the it's a ghost story too um Uh because i you know why why do just one thing um that's probably gonna be the my memoir is why do just one thing but um (laughs) it it it's told in the different tides of the landscape of the stories. So there's a, there's an ebb tide, there's a low tide, there's an iron tide, there's a slack tide, there's a neap tide, a smoke tide, cool. a high tide, of course, a perigee tide, a bone tide, a spring tide. And um, there's a song that weaves its way through the story too. I'll give you the link if you guys, if you want to share it. Um, yeah, we will have that link in the show notes so that okay. uh, listeners can pull that up. And listeners, to Fran's point, you may find yourself pulling this story that you've trunked out <laughs> and reading it on this podcast at some point in the future. I don't know what the future holds. Time is fake. It is. This has definitely been the longest march I have ever experienced in my entire life. It's an incredible, I, I can't believe that my birthday was only a few weeks ago. <laughs> it's incredible. It's, I feel like, I feel like this, this, this long day has just dragged on. This week has dragged on, but soon it will be, you know, March again. Soon we will have the dawning <laughs> of another day. Yes. Another March. We will have March of, of 2020, which runs straight into March of 2021. And then... God willing, we will have April of 2021. Yes, that will. That's how we we know that we have gotten out of Groundhog Day is when it's April. That will yeah. be great. I am looking forward to that. Yeah. So, uh, Fran, before you go, uh, you have a number of things that are coming out. It's uh, true. you have some new stories out uh, this month, December, when we are recording in Asimov's. You have Mayor for today. Mm-hmm. And in Rebuilding Tomorrow, we have Rhizome by Starlight. Yes. Uh, and Which is also about like... plants. So that was confusing. Excellent. <laughs> uh, and you also have a middle grade coming out, The yes. Ship of Stolen Words. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a few things about The Ship of Stolen Words as the longest thing of these? Ah, uh, The Ship of Stolen Words is, um, I had so much fun writing it. And I think that people will have a really wonder. I hope people will have a really wonderful time reading it. Um, it's got two POVs, uh, points. The first is a fifth, just about to graduate fifth grade, um, student named Sam Culver, who mm-hmm. his favorite word is sorry, because he knows it's going to get him out of all manner of trouble and it does it <laughs> works great until 
a bunch of word-stealing goblins take it away from him and take it back to their side of the universe. And Sam and his friends have to chase the goblins, one of whom is the other POV character, um, through a little free library portal into the the goblin side of the world where there are um, flying airships and floating cities and, um, among other things, an inventor who has figured out how to make these big, um, well, first of all, you should know that um, word stealing is a, a, a sort of an artisan craft practiced by only certain goblins, and they use... Mm. Um, shape-shifting pigs to help them you like on our side that would be the equivalent of a truffle pig sniffing out truffles mm-hmm. um so these are these are word pigs that sniff out overused words that would be good for certain things on the goblin side of of the, of the universe and this inventor has figured out a way to build m- mechanical ones that fly they're called word hogs so there is <laughs> sam and his friends are in this really wild adventure where they have to get sam's words back and a bunch of other people's words back as well because you know shenanigans have happened mm-hmm. and um they're chasing the goblins all over and and sam um eventually has to fly one of the word hogs and they have to figure out how they're going to get the words back before sam gets in some real trouble that he can't get out of um, and along the way, there's just a lot of really good friendship. Um, really, there's a focus on both the power of language and the meaning of words, but also the importance of being able to use words improperly and in order mm. to learn how they work. Um, and then it's just, it's, there's, I'm, I love uh, a lot of the characters. I love some of the goblins. I love, you know, Sam's parents are great and his teacher's great. It's just a really fun book to um, to write and to read. So if anybody knows a librarian or a book group that likes author visits, I am totally setting up a pre-order uh, sort of thing that is going to be predicated on that. And there's stickers Fabulous. as usual, because I'm a rolling calliope of swag when it comes to my books. Um, <laughs> and the other thing about uh, Ship of Stolen Words is it's a very different kind of book from mm-hmm. Riverland, which won the Nebula last year and was the, the Lodestar finalist. Um, Riverland is also a portal narrative. I really like portal narratives for middle grade, mm-hmm. but um, Riverland portal narratives function in that most times people are have to go to another world in order to figure out something in this world. And mm-hmm. um, so you see them um, with like Narnia. They, you know, these were kids that were trapped in the middle of World War II and they went to Narnia and they ha- were trapped in another war, but they could figure it out there because they had the power. Um, mm-hmm. Riverland is a portal fantasy about domestic violence and about two sisters that have to really rescue each other, but they, they go on an adventure mm. to do it. And it's it's a bit darker. It's a bit harder, of, more emotional of a read um, because mm-hmm. that is, um, I was writing that A, out of my experience, but I also knew really how important it was to uh, readers who were experiencing this, not to sugarcoat it. And not to hide Mm -hmm. things because um, I I was talking a lot about how kids especially are um, sort of called upon to make things look perfect when they're not. And Riverland Mm -hmm. is about unpacking that too. 
And so that's coming out in paperback in May. And they're just very, very different books. Same author, because why do one thing mm -hmm. when you can do many things? Uh, Absolutely. And then the last is the collection of poetry and artwork coming out from Lanternfish Press in August. I may have a couple of other, other short stories. I'm waiting on um, publication dates, but uh, the poetry collection is called Clock Star Rose Spine. And um, mm. it is going to be out in August. Fantastic. And listeners, we will have links to all of those <laughs> things in the show notes, Great. as is my want. Uh, Fran, where can listeners find you online? Well, you can find me at www.franwild, W-I-L-D-E, like Oscar, um, mm -hmm. dot net. You can join my Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash franwild with an E, all one word. Um, that's where you get sort of the early updates in the news. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at fran underscore wild, also with an E. I am much funnier on Twitter than anywhere else. <laughs> um, most of my journals end up on Instagram, along with all of my cooking tweets and cooking images. Uh, and... Yeah, it's high quality. You can you do it. Um, you can also find me. Um, I will be at Boscone this year. I'm teaching at Futurescapes, and um, I'll have more programming notes up on my calendar as I get them. I do teach some classes at Cat, for Cat Rambo's uh, programs, and mm -hmm. I am the director of the Genre Fiction MFA program at Western Colorado University, which is a low residency MFA. Very cool. So uh, listeners, if you're interested in doing an MFA and doing it in genre, check that program out. Uh, I will, I cannot vouch personally for this program. I can vouch personally for Fran and I can vouch personally for the impact of low residency programs uh, as a Warren Wilson graduate. Fran, Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, thank you for being patient with my schedule too. <laughs> yes, we were, uh, originally this episode was going to be recorded to release in June, I think. And then 2020 was 2020. And so I'm happy that this is the first episode of the new year, 2021. Perfect. Admitting that time is fake and who even knows. <laughs> Uh, one of the last episodes of March of 2020. And uh, <laughs> it's been super fun having you. Uh, listeners, stick around next month when our guest will be Jason Sanford. Aw, Jason. Yeah, I'm super looking forward to that one. Fantastic. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniacs. If you like the show, Consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Mm -hmm.